So I guess uh, it might tell you a thing or two. We just got back from a little week of vacation, and uh, probably my most memorable experience was around 12 o'clock midnight, looking at the sun, full moon, and just loving Pearl Jam. Now, just a few of you laugh because you were in the 70s, and you know Pearl Jam. In what was particularly revealing for those who don't know Pearl Jam is I came in as Lisa was reading a book inside and I said, man, you've been listening to this music? Isn't this incredible? And she looked at me and goes, it's dark. And it is dark, some of it. Um, Colin, not that you're dark, but I couldn't help but think of you. Do you know Pearl Jam? You, you had to have listened to Pearl Jam as you began your Oh, yeah, man, I, I see it. He is the next Pearl Jam. I'm, I'm, I'm not lying. But, uh, no, it, 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 it speaks to a mood. And it was a bit of a surprising mood for me because, you know, you go on vacations to be happy. You go on vacations, so you put a lot of work and effort and toil. And, I mean, we've been preparing for this actually for five years because it's this place we go in the Adirondacks. And, I mean, whether it's, it's, it's clearing fields, whether it's constructing a little cabin, whether it's, you know, putting in, you know, energy and cisterns, and I'm not, I'm not, every single one of them had a flaw this week. Everything had a little flaw. You know, you get there, my lawnmower's busted, and I can't mow the lawn, you know. What, I mean, it's not even a lawn, it's a pasture, but whatever. And, and, uh, you know, it just was, I, I, so I confess, you know, I don't want to, I didn't want to be here. Already I'm starting to change my mind because you've got me there with what we've done. Um, vanity is definitely my mood. Uh, the cynicism of this passage filled me to despair this week. And it still does, honestly. I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed. So it's going to come out a little bit like that. This might be Pearl Jam version of a sermon. Uh, a little bit dark, a little bit moody, a little bit pissed. Excuse me, I shouldn't have said that. That's, that is not right. I'm sorry. That, see, I told you. I, I didn't mean that to come out, honestly. It's my old self coming out. Too much full I did listen. To, just so you know, so you don't judge me and throw stocks at me, I, I listened to the Lord's music too, you know, all sons and daughters, till three in the morning one night, and it was good. You know, I did go to church, okay? Just calm down. But... I am what I am, and, you know, it's interesting. I told the elders when we were here that, you know, there's this tradition in the Scripture. You see it everywhere. We studied it in seminary. It's called enactment prophecy. Uh, there is this amazingly continuous and predictable pattern that the prophets, before they spoke, would be asked to live their prophecy. And I'm, I'm, I know I've said this before, but it's just uncanny. You know, we, 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 I'd chosen this passage well before vacation, and I guess God knew what I needed to feel to preach the mood of this passage, because it's a bit dark, isn't it? It's a bit dark. It's a bit... Mm. But think about it. We work ourselves to death. I know that's true for me. Oh, I'm doing the Lord's work. Really? We work ourselves to death. The most common descriptor of our lives when asked, busy, very busy. And while America ranks as one of the highest, if not the highest, in most rankings of hours worked in a career, I'm not talking about that kind of work or just that kind of work. 
I'm here talking about, yes, your career, but I'm talking about just how hard we work to be happy, to feel satisfied. It could be making your home and working the home, trying to make that home a place where you are satisfied. It could be planning and executing fun, such as an excursion, a travel, a second home in the place of your dreams. Boating, golfing, camping, you can name it. But think about how hard we work just to do any of that stuff. How much study we put in, how much internet searching we do just to buy one meager golf ball. We just work to get everything perfect, to find satisfaction. Oh, but you say, no, I do good work. Yeah, well, I do too. You know? I know you're raising your kids. I know you're serving the world. But really, is that what's motivating us, honestly? Yeah, maybe sometimes. But with truth be known, there's a, there's a response to all that work. There is a, there's a mood that we bring to all that work. And the word that is used is anxiety, stress. And underneath that stress, if you do a pathology of stress, well, Ecclesiastes, Koheleth, he, he does it good. Because he exposes vanity. Vanity, all this work under the sun. Scorching hot conditions. All is vanity. It's like striving after the wind. You know, and there are those moments when we are exposed, when we begin to see it, coming after a year of maybe the hardest work of my life, putting everything into a little six-day week, all that work for my children, all that work for my church, all that work for my city, all that work for my home, all that work to have fun didn't satisfy. It wasn't satisfying. And I was bare. And I know you know what I'm talking about. This passage, Lewis, again, I'll read it again, says it well. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, well, there's your moment. There's your pearl jam moment. That was my moment. The most probable explanation is this, that we were made for another world. Yes, a world that's in this world, but it's another world. Yep, ouch. And so, let's consider this other world. But first, let's go to Pearl Jam, a la Ecclesiastes. Let's just for a moment, give yourself permissions not to be happy. Okay? No smiles. Cut it out. Let's just be, for a moment, dark. Let's listen to this message. Because it's in our heart. We can't fake it. And out of that, let's discover another world. Of course, a world that's going to be revealed right here. Would you pray?
Well, come Lord Jesus, in spite of me, come. In spite of us, come. Come and we pray, lead us to that other world. A world that the, the devil cannot steal, kill, and destroy. But a world that is life and life abundant. We pray in Christ's name. Well, if you haven't read Ecclesiastes, um, just very briefly to get you into the world of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's really about wisdom. It's, it's one of the wisdom genres of Scripture. It's like Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, others like it, aimed at the redemption of life in general, saving life. That's what wisdom is, both in its common but also in its special grace categories It wants us, especially in Ecclesiastes, to see the vanity of worldly wisdom. That we might therefore long for the wisdom, the true wisdom, that is redemptive and life-giving. You see, there's something about what it means to be wise in this life, so as to answer, how then shall we live as God's creatures made in his image? that the cynicism of Ecclesiastes wants to direct us to. And upon contemplating how we should live, we will see how far we have fallen from true wisdom. Wisdom is an expression, you see, of God's law. We would love God's law, but our worldly wisdom says we're fearful of it and we hate it. The Ecclesiastes author knows this. So he just wants us to go to that Pearl Jam place in your heart. And there's a lot of Pearl Jam that's really sweet, by the way. Don't turn too far off of it. You ought to go listen to it. But there's some place that we need to go to be disgusted, to be sad. Because only then can we appreciate, again, this law of God. It's wise. It's loving. Again, in the words of Koheleth and Ecclesiastes, we hear the compassion of God looking down upon us. Perhaps I see him looking down with a bit of a grimace. You know, the kind of grimace that's hurt with pain as he sees us in all our toil and all our labor and all our work. And with this grimace, he repeats over and over and over and over again. Striving after the wind. Just striving after the wind. Just striving after the wind. Sadness that comes from the voice of God in this great wisdom collection. Why the grimacing refrain? Why this book? Well, so that we might be saved. So that we might be redirected in our lives to our redeemed back to this God who planned life for us. But of him, we're told in the New Testament, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption of life. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That pretty much sums up where Ecclesiastes wants to get us within the framework of redemptive history. But there's two interpretive observations I want to give you about this passage that I think will set it open for you a little bit. First of all, just remembering that wisdom in Ecclesiastes is unveiled and proclaimed as through what wisdom is not. By exposing what is vain, 
Now, vanity. Here's some words that describe vanity. Ineffective, hopeless, unsuccessful, unproductive, futile, empty, pointless, narcissistic, self-important, inflated. All words that are deeply embedded in this very powerful word, vanity. And all of that then, in this descriptor of chasing after the wind, over and over and over, a kind of wisdom that is fleeting, a kind of wisdom that is vanity, a kind of wisdom that is futility, a kind of wisdom that never is satisfied. And then the second interpretive observation is this. This wisdom of God doesn't target, and the way it comes to us through a clear, it doesn't target our rationality. If not directly, at least. But it targets our feelings, our emotions, our affections, if you will. It, to really understand Ecclesiastes, we must feel its voice before we can discern it cognitively. So, for instance, just take two prominent phrases that show up all the time in Ecclesiastes and in our passage as well today. First is this phrase, under the sun. Now, we are tempted to just pass right over that and just conclude working, you know, in the daytime. Or something like that, just to pass it right by. It doesn't invoke a feeling in us. Why? Because, well, we don't work under the sun. Under the hot, scorching, dry sun. Day in and day out. Most of us work in air-conditioned places. We work in the shade of a home. We work in the shade of an office. We work in the shade of a library, in a cubicle, wherever, in a church. And so we we just don't feel that. But imagine yourself in the first century, or even before, in this scorching, dry place called the Middle East. Day in and day out. Dry, sandy soil. Thorns. Hot. Pushing yourself, pushing yourself, pushing yourself. Just craving a cool wind. And yet the wind, wanting it, you just can't do any, it comes and goes. You have no control over it whatsoever. And it's your only air conditioner you've got. How does it make you feel about your life? How does it make you feel to get into that world, even if just for a moment? I mean, I tried to think about this. What would it look like for many of us? How would we write this today, lest we be tempted to pass right over these phrases? For many of us, as I said, working in the sun is what we do at best when we are playing. We bask in the sun. We suntan in the sun. Nothing in this passage evokes the emotion that it should. What would we say that gets back to this felt idea? Well, maybe you should say it for yourself. What is most toilsome for you? What is it about your life that you, if you just stop and think about it, the work you do, the things that drive you, What makes you anxious? What leaves you exhausted?
perhaps the phrase would be under the schedule. The hectic, frenetic, feverish, rushed schedule. It dawns upon me every moment, every once in a while, that my whole life is driven by faster. Faster. How fast can I get this done? Because I have so many more things to get done. Faster, 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 faster. Maybe it's that. The schedule is the scorching place under the sun. That frenetic, hectic, feverish, rushed schedule. Or perhaps it's the to-do list that always increases that bulleted list of things that must get done in order to be satisfied, in order to be happy. And every day the list starts over again and gets bigger. Even as some things come over from the day previous. Day after day, the list grows. Maybe that's the way you describe it. Perhaps under the enclosed confines of office or workspace, that experience of being enclosed in a small place, claustrophobic place, day in, day out, working the numbers, working the phone. See what I mean? I can't even preach without somebody calling. Sorry. I've got to learn to turn that thing off. That was kind of funny, wasn't it? I like that sound. Just zip it up, man. Just Okay, you, you know what I mean. Maybe it's expectations. I think that's probably the most for me. I've been having a more, lot more nightmares recently. I don't know why. I'm getting old. I'm never getting in REM sleep. That may be part of it. We're, we're analyzing it. But I have a lot of nightmares. Almost every one of them, almost every one of them, is defending myself against people who are disappointed. Almost every one of them. I'm not talking about you. Don't, don't, don't get all weird here, okay? That's not my point. It's just, they can be fabricated people. Just, I'm always finding a way. And so now comes a question. For what purpose really is all this activity under the sun? How much satisfaction do we really get from it all? And how much of all this work is really noble and for noble causes? I know these questions linger within you. I've talked to too many of you, and I know they linger within me. It's amazing, it's strange to me how relevant something written almost 3,000 years ago. I mean, these are, come on, these are archaic people. They're not modern like we are. What do they know about the frenetic pace of life? What do they know about hard work? They don't have the internet with this unlimited number of facts and data that we can find that makes us work all hours of the night. God, they, they had the lights turn off. How lucky are they? I'd give anything if the whole world's lights just turned off at around 11 o'clock or 12. Maybe one. I, I, could, I could enjoy that song. But it doesn't. What do they know? They don't know nothing. Really? Listen to this. They do know. But what's really exposing to me, and in all my modernistic chauvinism, nothing has changed. <laughs> nothing has changed. That is, that is a huge aha moment for you, if you're understanding this. These people are speaking our language. Nothing really has changed. Which tells me that we're chasing after the wind. If we think 
that we and our efforts and our technologies and our wisdom that's modernized, all of this, if we think for a moment that we can get ahead of all this and our own strength, that we can satisfy ourselves, we're just really, really blind. Because here it is, 3,000 years ago almost. And these people are knowing the same thing we're knowing under very different circumstances. That brings us then to this second phrase, which I've mentioned, chasing after the wind. So life is vanity. Life is chasing after the wind. Just let that grip you a little bit. You know, one of the things I was looking forward to this week the most was my daughter. We, we don't get to schedule us all together much, but the boys couldn't make it, but the daughter could, and it just wasn't enough. She left way too early. And all of it was gone. I won't see her till Christmas. Just chasing after the wind again. How do, you, how do you change this? What do you do? Do you just con- reconstruct life somehow? Do I, do I pick up my roots, find some meager money, get me a little camper, and just go and follow my children around the world? Some people try to do it, believe it or not. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That's the key question. The key question you see that's driving chapter 4 happened in chapter 3. It gave us a glimpse of the redemption there. The phrase went like this, and you can hear it in a longing tone. And so I saw there, and so I see, he says, that there is nothing better than a man that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. What can bring him to see what he will be after himself? Oh, is that a riddle? That's one to really contemplate. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? In other words, is there a life? Yes, with a noble work to be done, but can be content in what is his lot to do. In other words, to be satisfied in the work itself for the sake of its work and not self-reliant for his happiness. Not a work that's driven out of the desire to be happy. Now again, you can do a lot of good work, but motivated out of self-happiness. You could say, but you don't know, Pastor, I love my kids. I will do anything to serve them and help them be happy. Yeah, but why do you want them to be happy? I mean, is that their purpose? Is that what we're doing? Is just creating another generation of people whose happiness is their goal? The whole point of Ecclesiastes is happiness should not be our goal. That we should be relying upon Christ for happiness, or God for happiness. That God will give us happiness, even as we're busy serving God. And when we turn that upside down and we serve ourselves in happiness, and therefore whatever we're doing, even if a good thing, it's not serving God, we become, of all people, most miserable. 
Now, I just said to you the gist of what Ecclesiastes 4 is about. It's this contrast between those who find themselves absorbed in their own lives and in their own happiness, even doing good things out of self-absorption, discovering themselves as lonely, sad, anxious people. Versus those exposed in chapter 3, very, they, he, doesn't get, he doesn't get happy very often, don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's very, you know, very, but every once in a while it gives you a glimpse, this is where I want you to go, and you hear what he's saying. Especially in that phrase, who can bring him to see what will be after himself? You see, this whole striving can be incredibly narcissistic. And narcissism doesn't extend just to me. It's everything that I identify with, my treasure that's me. My children, my home, my vacations, travels, all of that becomes a very self-absorbed, self-reliant, striving, working, hectic, frenetic, scheduling. Nothing is enough. When does work not then become idolatrous as to do our work as unto the Lord? That's where we want to go here. But very briefly, notice then verses chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. I'm not going to get into the details of it. But it begins with, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. You see, everyone's so busy, it goes on to describe self-absorbed in their self-reliant pursuit of happiness and satisfaction, that we don't realize that no one's there comforting you and you're not comforting anyone else because we're all self-absorbed. And as you saw, I'll say it to you right now, where this all ends is not into a passage that's talking about marriage, although it's a good passage for marriage, but he, he gets you to this place where don't you, get, don't you see what all your work is doing to you? It's making you a very pitiful person. A very lonely person. A very self-absorbed person. And the product of that is relationships suffer, satisfaction suffers, and happiness suffers. Don't you know, he wants to say in this proverbial way, that two are better than one. That their happiness is important to your happiness. That their warmth, that their protection, that they're this, and that in some way you do that in a manner where it's not for your happiness sake, but it's truly for the sake of its work. And certainly our job is not to raise children in order to make them happy so that now they believe happiness is the goal of their life, because that's exactly what turns ironically on its head and you become the most miserable and anxious of people in life. There's something about giving. Cheerfulness in Corinthians 8 is identified with giving. It's more blessed to give than to receive, says Christ. And you hear that as, oh boy, here it comes. It's a moralistic. He's going to ask for more money. He's going to ask for more service. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. What I'm saying to me, no, I'm not 
Don't serve this church to be happy, to get the accolades, to get this, to get that. There'll never be enough. It's, it's no different for me. Maybe worse. You see, it just goes on. So this cause of oppression, we're oppressing ourselves. He says, because there's no one to comfort each other in this pursuit. And he goes on and talks about that, this hopelessness of oppression, this lamenting. He goes on to say in the most graphic of terms, it's a kind of morbid cynicism. He said, just, it'd just be better to be dead, to live your whole life unsatisfied, to live your whole life never finding. I know you're saying, I know what I'm thinking. Come on, Preston, life is good. I've heard you say life is good. It is good. To the degree that I live wisely, it can be good. So that's not the point. It's not all or nothing. This is a moment to be in Pearl Jam, remember? Let's just listen to it. Let it expose us. Don't get defensive. I'm saying that to myself, by the way. Because I'm getting defensive as I'm preaching. I don't want to hear this anymore. He talks about envy. I mean, just think about it. These are all the things. Anxiety, flag. Envy, flag. Comparison, flag. Looking at other body's life, flag. If I had what they had, I'd be happy. If I had what they had, I'd be satisfied. If I get where they went, I'd be satisfied. It's just interesting. You know, it's interesting this week. Some of you know we're planning to go to, to uh, uh, where am I going? Zambia, Medola. It's been an incredibly frenetic two weeks, uh, getting ready. You know, I'm, I'm teaching in a university. 75 students are going to be there. And you know, I need all these you know, handouts and syllabus and all this kind of stuff, doing all that while we're going through impact week and everything else. It's been frenetic. And then she calls up, the, the, the dean calls up in the, you know, or emails in the middle of the, of the week and says, you know, we're really excited about you coming. There's a buzz, you know, da-da-da. We would like to have a convocation since it's the 500-year anniversary. Would you be willing to deliver a lecture for the, full, the whole university? And we're going to invite the whole Protestant communion of Zambia. I'm not lying to you. No, I, I mean, I went from, you know, what an honor, thank you, that's what I wrote, to, oh, and I'm not going to say the word. And... It's interesting what that reveals. You know, what a sinner, what a screwball I am. No, really. Am I going for the Lord? I wouldn't have anxiety. I, I, I could without a note speak the Lord. I could without anything go through and talk about, you know, the, the solas and, and, and talk about the great effect of the Reformation upon the church and ecclesiology, that's what they want me to do. They want me to talk about confessional theology and ecclesiology. Can you imagine that? My whole life study. Okay, great. But if, if that's really what it was, which I want it to be, pray for me. I want to speak and really speak into their lives and into their churches. But what I'm starting to do is talk about what kind of lecture is going to be well received. Blah. That's gross. That's vanity. That's what I am, vain. Your pastor is really vain. And he says it right. It's like morbid. Death would be better than such 
oppressiveness, of anxiety, and all of this stuff. Now, he's not, you've got to understand this. This is not a guy talking about suicide or anything like that. He's trying to wake me up. Sitting under the moon, listening to Pearl Jam. Contemplating this passage. And he did. In this cause of loneliness, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Oh, when they compare me to all the other lecturers that come over here, what will they think? I'm I'm really embarrassed to admit this. This is really gross stuff. Our homes, children, comparing them to our other children, our clothes, our images, our grades, professions. You can do every bit of them vainly. Self-sufficiently striving after happiness. Working ourselves to death. Oppressed under its load. All is vain chasing after the wind. And all this work results in then bringing us to verse 7 through 12. He says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Oh, did you hear it? The, The breath of fresh air? It's okay. It's okay. Be still. When, when the scripture talks of quietness, especially in the law, it's usually in the context of being still and quiet from our labor and our toil and our hecticness in a way that knows that God is God. Be still and know that I am God, not you yourself. You see, that's the point. We're into ourselves. Know that I am God. Be still. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Trusting God. Resetting that button. Saying, God, I will work the work you gave me today and that will be enough and I'm not going to compare what others did. I'm just going to do the work faithfully that you called me to do today. One handful of quietness. And that's where he comes in and says, and don't you see, to be reliant on others, to trust that God is working through other people and not just you, that you're not the savior of Zambia? I mean, how ridiculous is that? It's putrid ridiculous. It's gross. Now, granted, I would never say that's what I believe. Never in a million, like, oh no, I'm, I'm worthless. I can't do anything. That's what I would say if you asked me. Oh, it's all the Lord. It's all God. Kumbaya, blah, blah, blah. But then I'm anxious. And that says that's not about God. Anxiety is never about God, it's about me. It's just the truth. I need. God, Spirit, the wind. It is interesting, this striving after the wind, striving after Ruach. 
I'm sure the Hebrew read the Hebrew right and understood that Ruach is also the same word that enters into creation and gives it life, the Spirit of God hovering over the nothingness. Oh, do we need the Ruach of God, the wind of God. Not the wind of my temporal making, but the wind of God, this quiet Ruach. That's what it says, the quiet of God. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls full of toll and striving after Ruach of this world versus Ruach of God. Two are better than one. That is, self-sufficient driven satisfaction will never be as satisfying as our being in relation to God and reliant trusting that he will bring happiness even as I'm busy doing my work for him. I don't have to stop life and make myself happy. Just do the work he's called you to do. Do it without the anxiety. Do it without all the hectic, frenetic stuff that you pile on it because of your own narcissistic vanity. Just do it as unto the Lord. Do this good work. Trust the Lord. And you're saying, trust him, great. How do I do that? I don't know. Keep asking. That's where it starts. Keep asking God. That's a big start. Start by confessing and repenting and then ask. God, give me this quietness. Give me this kind of happiness that's not of this world. Give me this other world. That's what he's asking us to think about. It's interesting. He's really pretty smart here. He goes into this two are better than one, and that two is better than one is applied to at least three circumstances, which we all struggle with, with in terms of our anxiety. It talks about the absence of an heir when only one. Isn't that ironic? We, we often think of our legacy. We often think of you know, what, what it is I'm leaving behind. Well, you know, that's not all on you. The advantage of a companion keep us warm. Now, many apply this to marriage, of course, but it's in the context, probably not. It's the context of, of being in camp. Two people with their camp things shared together, making us warmer. All of these sort of things. Well, I'm going to go on to Matthew real quickly to conclude. It's amazingly prophetically fulfilling of Ecclesiastes. Did you hear it? Where your heart is, there your treasure. So you want to say, well, how do I get there, Pastor? Well, I really think it's, it's a cliche, but it's got to start with your heart. But listen to the way he gets you there. It's really profound, and I'm just going to summarize it very quickly. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures. Now, what are treasures? A treasure is what you value. It's what you value for satisfaction. It's what you value for where you're going to get happiness. It's what you think will make you happy. And what's interesting is he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And he goes through the fact that they will always not satisfy you. You will never get ahead of it when it's on earth. You won't. Your vacation house won't do it. Your travel schedule won't do it. Your home will not do it. Your degree will not do it. Your publishing won't do it. On and on and on and on and on when it's done in vanity. 
It's striving after the wind. He says it just like that. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And treasures on earth are not just material things. It's pointing to our self-sufficiency to manipulate this world, to work this world. That's why he comes up with a, with a, a kind of a parable, if you will, that it's, you can't love both God and what? Money. Now, money is not the issue. It's the power to maneuver the world with it that's the issue. It's the power to manipulate the world. Now, maybe your currency isn't dollar bills. Maybe your currency is degrees or publishing or reputation or whatever it is. That's the point. You can't love the currency of your life, what you grab hold of to manipulate the world to your satisfaction and happiness. You can't have that and also have God. Does that make sense now to you? It seems so trivial before, doesn't it? If all you're thinking about is, oh, God hates money, he doesn't hate money. What he hates is what it represents, this mammon. The mindset here in the context of laying for ourselves treasures on earth. Seeking by our own ability and reliance to manipulate life through my hard work and toil. So treasure what you, is what you value, where you look for for satisfaction. And then he picks up with this idea and he calls it, and he, and he, and he clarifies it. He says, so the eye is the lamp of the soul, the body, the whole person. The eye, he's, so just as your eyes kind of are, the, are, are, are what gives light to the soul, it's what you see that then you want to feed you, or satisfy you, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. What he's saying there is if your treasure is a healthy treasure, a real treasure, then you will be delighted. You will be happy. You will have abundant life. If your treasure is the right treasure. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of dark. He's saying exactly what Ecclesiastes is saying. Anxiety, covetousness, greed, envy, darkness, darkness, darkness. Pearl jam all over. I'm really giving him a bad rap. He can be very hopeful, actually. There's some good stuff in Pearl jam. If then the light in you is darkness, he says, how great will be that? So it starts, you're asking, where, where is this? how do I get out of this? Well, it starts with your treasure. It starts with what you see and you desire. And you say, well, how can I stop seeing what I desire? Well, one thing you can do is stop looking at it. You know, get rid of every magazine in your house, if you need to, that tempts you to look at a treasure that's earthly. Just get rid of it. I know. I'm hearing, I, I, Lord, I hear it. It's coming at me ten times a matter. Well, isn't it all right to be happy in this way? Isn't it all right to enjoy all that God has enjoyed? Isn't it all right? Yes, it is. That's not the point. Let God give them to you in his proportion, in his time. Focus on what it is you can do that is for him and for his glory and faithfulness. But you need to know, you know, when the Lord says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, he's, 
you know, another way to say that is pluck away whatever it is your eye looks at that causes you to sin. So there are some things you can do. You can pray. You can repent first. You can pray. You can flee temptation. If you go back to James, I'm doing this paraphrase, but he talks about how, how all of this starts in the heart. It comes through the desires, your eyes, into sin. So you start in your heart. You ask God to give you a new heart. You need to be born again if you're not already. You really do. And then we need to be born again a thousand million times over. And I don't mean that in justification a thousand times million over. I just mean it's a continuing work of the Spirit illuminating us with new eyes and new things to see. And it's a work of the Spirit. You've got to pray for it. I need to pray for it. But then we're going to get rid of some temptations. You're going to go home today, literally, and you're going to say, out. This magazine's out. Or this TV show, I know, I, like, I love this home improvement shows on HGTV, okay? I just love doing things with my hands. I crave it. And I sit there, and, but you know, I might have to turn it off. Especially the one on beach bargains. You know what I'm talking about, the beach bargains. I can, I can, I can you're, you're not, and thank you for at least telling me I'm not the only person here. And I'm looking at those beach bargains. At least we could do this, we could sell that, we could do this, we could do that, we could do this, we could do that. Let's get one down, you know, oh, but let's do it for the family. My kids are going to be in Virginia Beach. Let's go get one in Virginia Beach. It's all for the family. I mean, it's sick how good we are. No, it's not. Not necessarily, at least. Did you understand? I gave room for it to be. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. And he goes on to talk about this. Your heart, your devotion, temple things. Well, let me just stop right there. Ask yourself honestly. Give yourself permission, honestly, for God to expose your heart. And to get you there, think about where you are anxious. What you do envy in other people's lives. Where you are prone to work yourself to the bone. See if God will give you the strength to trust Him, to work it a little less, to put it in its proportion. You know, a Sabbath is a huge gift. And I've said this every time people ask me about it. We need the Sabbath because it is a real reality check. If I can't give myself Sabbath every day to be quiet with the Lord and to pray and to think and reflect, if I can't give myself God commanding me to every Sunday. I mean, whatever you describe it, sun up to sundown, where you say, I will stop. And you find yourself not able to do it? Bingo. Guilty. And confess it. Can the Lord give you a quiet place one day of the week? Would you receive that as a gift from him? You'll be surprised what you can do when you can do it with a clear and unanxious mind through the week. Throw away some things. And most importantly, again, re-receive Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not talking about the revival thing. You're coming down here. You're saved. 
by grace, through faith, not of yourself, lest anyone can boast. You're justified by free grace, once and for all, by faith put upon Christ, what he did 2,000 years ago on the cross. Done. Empty. Done. That doesn't mean you're experiencing the abundant life yet. That's a growth process. That's a process of sanctification. And it means you die to self every day and put your faith every day back on Christ. It's a persevering kind of thing to do, according to scriptures. So I encourage you, persevere in repentance and faith. Be born again and again and again and again in these sanctifying ways, not justifying ways. And we come to this table, and it speaks freshly to us. I need your life. It's all that body and blood is. The life of Christ. Oh God, the life of Christ needs to be in my soul, my heart. Would you pour your life into my heart? Would you change my values? I need you, Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, to be justified, to even know that he's on your side, is to not be self-reliant upon yourself in that area either. Not trying to get yourself all worked up morally to satisfy God but it's to receive him, his grace, freely given through Jesus Christ. All you have to do is assent that Jesus Christ is God and man, the Son of God, sufficient to satisfy all the requirements of the law that we didn't, because he's God and man, to assent to him as being our Savior, to know that you need him such as to receive him as your Savior, to say, I want him, and then to say, I give up my self-reliance and I put my reliance on you and rest in him. That's what you can do today, too. Make sure you let us know on that card if you want to talk to somebody. Let's pray.